Content warning, this podcast may contain sensitive subject matters and listener discretion is advised. The podcast is also intended as general information only and should not be taken as personal advice. Whilst every care has been taken to provide up-to-date information, we cannot take your personal circumstances and situation into account and therefore this information should not replace the personal advice of your medical, financial, welfare or legal services. Welcome to another episode of Theories of Hope. I'm your host, Beck Howlett, and thanks for having me. When we're first diagnosed, it can feel like our life is shattering around us and that we're collapsing under the overwhelming pressure of not only the system, but just of the diagnosis itself. You can feel like all hope is lost, powerless, and just deprived of any joy that you ever thought you'd ever have. For most of us, diagnosis means learning a virtual PhD in, in linguistics and logistics, just to understand the new circumstances that surround us and understand our diagnosis. From a medical research point of view, we know that the diagnosis doesn't just affect a person living with the condition, but it also affects their entire ecosystem. And the long-term health risks for everyone involved can be quite severe. It places pressure on family members and friends at an increased risk of developing mental health problems, as well as placing significant stress on those familial and social relationships that we rely on. So how do we prevent things from deteriorating? How do we prevent them from getting exponentially worse and from ourselves and everybody around us just getting sicker and sicker? Well, the very first thing you need to do is to cut yourself a break. This is not your fault. You did not do this. You did not cause this. This is not in a thousand years would you have ever wished this upon yourself. The average IQ of a person is 100. And a person living with an IQ of 60 or less is diagnosed as having severe cognitive disabilities and qualifies for a disability pension here in Australia. When we're stressed, our IQ diminishes by 50%. So for an average stressed out person, they're functioning with barely the IQ of a diagnosed imbecile. Thus, when I say give yourself a break, it's because I mean it. Because at this moment in time, you need a break more than you need anything else. And you cannot be realistically expected to make sound and rational decisions. Once you've taken a moment to compose yourself, you'll want to organise your support system. This means getting in touch with patient advocacy groups like MS Australia, Cancer Council, Arthritis Australia, etc. These are all examples of peak patient advocacy associations in our country. Call them because they can and will offer a lot of help, support and guidance. Join your local Facebook group and introduce yourself. For example, Australian Psoriatic Arthritis Warriors or NDIS Gippsland, Multiple Sclerosis Australia and MS Warriors. These Facebook groups, especially those unique to your region like NDIS Gippsland, are filled with amazing survivors and full of useful information that can help you to navigate the system in your region area. They can provide information and application advice on things like applying for the NDIS and to send link. But more than that, they can also be an important peer resource when you and your family are feeling alone, vulnerable and isolated. 
being able to have conversations with people who are living through what you're going through and have been there too is not only inspiring but a reminder of the resourcefulness and the intrinsic value that you still have as a person living with chronic illness, disability or mental illness. Another thing is to give Relationships Australia or a similar organisation a call. This is an extremely stressful, turbulent and traumatic time in your life that you are going through and you are going to want and need some support or counselling to stay sane. Don't be afraid to speak to one of their grief counsellors because make no mistake, this anger and sadness that you feel right now, it is grief. Grief for the life you're losing, for the dreams that you once had about yourself and for everything that you think you've lost. So talk to someone. They can help support you and your family navigate your emotions and unpack them as you navigate the system, along with advice on the people and organisations in your unique region that are best suited to support you along that journey. If you're employed, don't be afraid to talk to your local EAP rep who can offer counselling services and support to have those difficult conversations with an employer. The next thing to do is to start booking double appointments with your GP in advance. If you don't already have a great GP or a GP who is familiar and comfortable with your diagnosis, ask the practice manager for a recommendation and then book double appointments in advance. When a GP um, graduates, that's only the beginning of their learning time. Many GPs will choose to unofficially specialise in something that they have a particular interest in. So one GP might particularly like um, skin and do postgraduate certificates in skin and another might really like rheumatology and do postgraduate certificates in rheumatology and another might like uh, be interested in multiple sclerosis and so they might do postgraduate certificates in, in multiple sclerosis. This is the difference between general practitioners and it's why you may want to have a conversation with the general practice manager and say this is my diagnosis i'm really overwhelmed right now i really need a gp who is really thorough um, and competent with my particular diagnosis because i need some guidance here and they'll be able to usually recommend or refer you to, to someone in their practice who's done some either done some extra graduate work or perhaps just because they've got family members or something like that um, with those conditions um, has a good understanding of that diagnosis and will be best suited to support you in it. Keep in mind that the better the GP the harder it is to get in to see them and trust me when I say that your appointments will now take longer that you're diagnosed. Now that you're diagnosed, your appointments are about to become more complex. Nothing is ever straightforward. They have to double check and triple check things because there's always a risk. A simple sniffle could just be a cold or it could be a symptom of something else. So it is important that you book double appointments. I book my appointments three months in advance. Every three months I go online and I use the online app to log in and book my double appointments. I book them on my payday because I live three hours away and I'm happy to travel three hours to see my GP because she's just that freaking awesome. Now the reason this is really important and this is the reason I do it. So take for example, um, it's currently March now. So if I were to log on right now and I was going to go booking appointments, what I would do is I go, it's March. My GP is usually booked six weeks in advance. So I just go, screw it and I just jump to June right 
and I'd go, okay, payday's a Tuesday, whatever. I'd book an appointment for, say, the 7th and then the 21st of June and then the 5th of July and the 19th of July and so on and so forth. And I'd make sure there were always double appointments. Now, the reason I do it like that, the reason I have them fortnightly set apart is for this reason. I may end up cancelling them. That's fine. But the reason they're so close together is simple. It's because you never know when something is going to happen and all of a sudden some organisation or something's going to happen and they're going to go, hey, we need more information from you to confirm your eligibility for something or, I don't know, we just need more information from you. Um, here's 10 pages of information we need your doctor to fill out. Yay, great, thanks for that. Your doctor's not going to be able to fill that 10 pages of information out in one appointment. It's probably going to take her four. And this is why. Doctors speak medical speak. They speak medical language. People in community services don't. And there's a massive disconnect. And in my personal opinion, this is highly problematic, but it's the way the system is. There's a huge disconnect between health services and community services. And so the doctor will write in a form and go, Patient Smith has been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, multi, you know, resulting in multiple sclerosis symptoms. And that should be reasonably straightforward, like, seriously, how hard is it to figure out what multiple sclerosis symptoms are? But you hand that over to any community services organisation and they're probably going to look at you and go, I'm sorry, there's not enough information here, we need this more explained. What do you mean more explained? Well, what they will very poorly explain to you, and I do mean poorly, because if you ask them to please explain this to you, they'll give you some fandangled answer that makes no sense. Don't ask me why that that happens, but it just does almost 100% of the time. They'll give you some fandangled answer that makes no bloody sense at all. I swear to God, they make these things as confusing as humanly possible, unnecessarily so. Basically, what they want is for your doctor to write a functional example of what your symptoms are right so i'm arthritic right so for my doctor they don't just want becky has arthritis they need her to go becky has arthritis and as a result of that she has trouble moving her lower trunk um, and turning to the left and right she can move slightly more to the right than she can to the left she um, gets neuropathic pain up and down um, both legs which is um, consistent with sciatica and some um, gi um, sorry not gi um Oh, it's the other bloody major hip joint there, whatever, hip joint issue there. Um, her therapies have been blah, 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 blah. Um, we have tried this and this uh, to no avail. She still continues with these symptoms and is unlikely to improve even with existing um, medication and continued therapies. So they need a really, really detailed explanation. And that is why your doctor's never, ever going to be able to fill that form out in one sitting. It's going to take four sittings. And your doctor's going to want to have you there. They're going to want to communicate with you because they're going to want to say to you, okay, I have a form Q230 here. Uh, what's the form for? Okay, what you're hoping to get out of it? Okay, what do you want me to convey to them? Right, okay, what's the purpose? Right. 
Why do we need it? Okay, all right. And then they're going to have a, a conversation with you because the doctor's not going to remember everything based on every conversation they've ever had with you. So the doctor's going to go, oh, okay, you're hip. Um, remind me again. Yep, yep, yep. And then they might get you to stand up and bend and move just so they can double check a few things to see if things have you know, gotten better or worse. They'll have a look at their notes on their computer to see how it is so they can marry everything. But again, they still need to be able to have all of that conversation with you. So that form it's probably going to take four visits. And again, if your doctor's at all worth their degree, honestly, that's an awful way to put it, but if they're reasonably good, they've probably got a six-week wait list on average. So you want your appointments booked close together because otherwise if you haven't done that and someone hands you that form and you're like, oh, God, I've got to get the form filled out by the doctor, you're going to take it in, they're going to get a quarter of a page done, and then you're going to have to book another appointment in six weeks. And then you go on in six weeks and they do another quarter. Oh, God, still haven't finished. Oh, another appointment, another six weeks. And all of a sudden it takes you three to four months just to get this form finished. And that's no fault of your doctor. It, it's just the system. It's just the way it is. So this is my advice. Book your appointments three months in advance, a fortnightly apart, and then just cancel them if you don't need them. I cancel probably 70% of my appointments, but at least they're there. And I know if anything ever happens, like if I'm running my own business and all of a sudden I just get knocked down, sideswiped by a really gnarly cold or a flu, at least I know oh, I've got an appointment coming up. I don't have to wait six weeks to get in to see my doctor to get the medications that I need, which for me is actually really important because I have really awful lungs. So for me, if that cold turns into a chest infection, I can rapidly go from mild chest infection to pneumonia and in the ICU in about three days. So having those appointments constantly there is very, very, very beneficial and allows me to keep on top of whatever my situation is at that time and at that moment. The next thing to focus on is your actual relationship with your GP. The relationship you have with your GP will be next to the relationship you have with your spouse will be the next most important relationship you have in your life. Your GP will be your biggest ally, your biggest advocate and your biggest champion. So you want to invest in a healthy, enriching and sustainable relationship with them. If you are not happy with your GP, keep searching until you find one who understands you and is easy to communicate. Trust in your doctor's judgment. Do you have a particular doctor that you really admire, for example, because you think they are especially skilled or qualified? Trust me when I say birds of a feather flock together. And the next time you need a high-quality recommendation for another good doctor or a healthcare provider, you can go to that best doctor that you really like because it's highly likely that they're going to know somebody that's brilliant and they'll be able to recommend someone to you that will act with the same skill and standard and um, patient um, advocacy ability that they have. Um, I'll give you an example of this. I, crikey, oh, when I was first diagnosed, as I said, I was misdiagnosed. I, I took two years to get diagnosed. Then I was misdiagnosed for seven years. It was awful I don't wish it on anybody and 
I kept going back to my doctor at the time, going, help, help, I'm begging you, help me. Like, I'm suffering here. I'm in excruciating pain. Please help me. And he did not want to know about it. He just didn't, he didn't give a rat's backside. He didn't want to know about it. He, well, he was not invested in actually supporting me. He was very, I am the doctor here. I know what's best. As far as he was concerned, I was a mental case, and that, that was my issue. And I said to him, I said, well, mate, I've already got a psychiatrist and my psychiatrist disagrees. He's adamant that this is not a psychiatric illness and that there's something else going on here. He completely disagrees with you, so we need to have a conversation. And the rheumatologist at the time was like, well, I think I would know better than the psychiatrist. You know, I'm the rheumatologist. Who would know better than the rheumatologist about rheumatic conditions? And I'm like, but you're the dickhead he's saying. I ain't calling him a dickhead. I said, but you're the one who's trying to tell me that this rheumatic condition's not rheumatic. Like, dude, he, and he's, you're telling me it's mental health, or he's saying it's not mental health, so hang on. Dude, you're not making any sense. In the end, he just lost his temper and started screaming and said, you know, you need to find another psychiatrist because you are obviously mentally unstable, and if he is not supporting you and you are not getting better, then it is not my problem. Anyway, based on that one conversation, I was so thoroughly disgusted that that doctor could just talk smack about a doctor who knew nothing about that I went back to my psychiatrist because my psychiatrist was brilliant. I absolutely adored him. I had the utmost respect for him as a human being as well as a doctor. And I said to him, I said, look, this is the conversation I've just now had with my, my rheumatologist. I said, I'm done. I'm broken. I said, can, can, could you refer me to a rheumatologist, please? Because I don't know what else to do. And I live three and a half hours out of town, you know, like, I can't go ask my GP. My GP doesn't bloody know. Like, I'm in, I'm in regional Victoria here. And uh, yeah, my psychiatrist was extremely relieved, extremely relieved. He'd been chomping at the bit for probably a couple of years to refer me to somebody else. But he didn't want to overstep the mark, so he was very relieved. He's like, yes, 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 uh, yes, here, go see Dr. Marion. Well, I went and saw Dr. Marion. It took Dr. Marion all of 15 minutes to go, yes. <laughs> Nah, your previous diagnosis is hogwash. This is what's actually going on. Um, and, and she did that based entirely on my, the, the look of my skeleton and, and having a look at things and a functional assessment that she did and, and my blood tests and everything else. And so she put me on some medication and I began to get better. I absolutely began to get better. And from that I learned the birds of a feather flock together. And so when... Dr. Marion retired. I went back to my psychiatrist and I need another psych I need another rheumatologist. She goes, he goes, yep, here's Dr. Kate. I love Dr. Kate. I think the sun shines at Dr. Kate's ass. Like she's fucking fabulous. And when I needed um, a gynecologist, he's like, yep, here we go. There's Lent. You know, now I have five doctors that I just adore. Like I just think the sun shines out of all their bums. They're bloody brilliant. They are exceptional at what they do. They're fantastic. They treat me as their equal, not as a subordinate. Um, they happily and healthfully communicate with each other. And they are fantastic. I, I, I couldn't ask for a better team. But more to the point, I'm thriving. I am absolutely thriving under the care of doctors who are competent, capable and know their shit. And all of that was because... I decided to test the theory that birds of a feather flock together and I decided to, you know, trust that one good doctor's judgment and ask him for advice on who do I see? Who's somebody else that you would actually respect? Because I respect you, so who do you respect? And I've highly benefited from that. Highly benefited. So I cannot overstate 
invest in your relationship with your doctor because next to your spouse, it's the most important relationship you'll have. They will be your biggest advocates. They will be your biggest champions. And I, I got to tell you, the amount of times that psychiatrist, you know, I've gone into an emergency room or something and some twats turned around and gone, oh, there's nothing bloody wrong with you. You know, you, you're just a mental case. And I've gone, dude, I get that I have anxiety and shit, but like, come on, it's not that bloody bad. Like, seriously, the only freaking reason I see a psychiatrist is because I'm on a shit ton of meds. Otherwise, he would have he, he stopped seeing me because I'm very well managed like there's no other need but I'm on a lot of meds and therefore it does require a certain level of pharmaceutical oversight because the risk of things like serotonin syndrome and such are, are always there but anyway you know you're in the hospital and some twats like and you know I just turn around and go well fine then mate here's my psychiatrist phone number give him a call let's see you argue it with him and you watch them just go grey because they're quite happy to bully you, the patient, but God forbid they have that argument without your fucking psychiatrist. And you know, 110% of the time, those twats were always wrong. 110% of the time, it was never mental health. It was actually something physically wrong with me. And in both those instances, I nearly died, which is a whole other conversation for another day. But, you know, and I have absolutely seen that psychiatrist tear limbs off of people for devaluing me because oh she's a psych patient and he's just gone to absolute town because he won't have it he will not have it so when i say your doctor is your champion he is your best advocate i mean it invest in your relationship with him and trust their judgment but all of that is based upon the foundation of you need to find a really good one okay it's extremely important as humans we'll date 70 odd people before we choose to settle down with one person but we get offended when we don't instantly find the right fit in our medical practitioners which is completely ludicrous because they're still human beings you can't just assume that because they've got a medical degree we're going to magically get along with them or they're going to magically get along with us quite frankly we may not like them they may not like us they may have a personality problem they may be batshit crazy doesn't matter just because they're a medical practitioner does not mean that we're going to get on well with them so if you don't have a doctor that you genuinely like you find it easy to communicate with and you can respect then keep going until you find one just like you wouldn't give up and just settle for any old rando to marry my uncle told me a story once he says like a little boy he goes out to dinner with his parents and his parents tell him, Johnny, you can only have one dessert tonight. And he's like, okay, mum, okay, dad. And the waitress, she brings out fruitcake and he loves fruitcake. So he grabs the first piece and he's so happy because he got some fruitcake and others around the table, they missed out. So he's really happy. He got some fruitcake. Oh. And then 30 minutes later, the, the, the waitress brings out double-decker chocolate cake. And he's like, Mom, Dad, please, can I have a piece? Please, it's my favourite. You know it's my favourite. And they said, no, we told you, one dessert, one dessert only. You've already had it. No, 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 you've already had your dessert. Too bad. The moral of the story is don't settle for the first thing you meet or you could get stuck with a fruitcake. Now, it applies in relationships. It also applies for doctors. Don't settle. Don't settle. If he's a fruitcake, move on. Go find somebody. Go find your chocolate cake. Keep going. Don't settle. And the other thing is, don't be afraid to go private when you're looking at specialists. I know that can seem ridiculously expensive and upsetting, but hear me out on this. Most of my specialists are private, but my procedures are done publicly. 
when I was first diagnosed, as I said, I had to wait two years on the public list just to get a bloody diagnosis. And even then it was wrong. I was misdiagnosed for seven years. The public healthcare system is overworked and it's un un underfunded. Finally, when I went private, I only had to wait a month to see the doctor of my choice. Yes, okay, it cost me 180 bucks, and Medicare only reimbursed me $64.20. But I got a correct diagnosis and I was able to return to see that doctor four weeks later without any hassle. The fact that our government thinks it's remotely okay to pay doctors, especially specialists, $64.20, because make no mistake, if the doctor bulk bills, that's what they're getting paid, is a whole other conversation for another day. And I can rant about that for hours, that I think it's bullshit. And the doctors carry on and go, oh, we need better outcomes for health for our patients. Yet, no shit, Sherlock. So hire a few more doctors and pay them what they're worth. I guarantee you, you'll change the health outcomes for patients. But they don't want to do that. No, 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 no. But that's another conversation for another day. So yes, $180 is a lot of money, but it beats waiting two years to get the wrong diagnosis and then to be misdiagnosed for seven years. Not to mention, you get the value of seeing the same doctor every single time and not just some rando specialist that's available on that day at that public hospital. All of my doctors are private, 90% of them actually do kindly choose to bulk bill me as a pensioner. So don't just assume it just because they're private, they're not going to bulk bill you. 90% of mine do. And i got to tell you, my doctors, I am, and I acknowledge my privilege in this, you know, that one doctor who referred me to all of my doctors, I later found out I'm ridiculously privileged because my doctors are in a niche of their own. They're extraordinarily good and they're at the absolute bloody top of their field. They could charge over and above and beyond what you would normally charge because they are extraordinary they have orders of australia medals and all sorts of things going on they're good but they don't they choose to bulk bill me anyway because they see me for what i am they see me i'm happy to travel they, they see everything else and they're like you know what i care more about you getting better and getting well than charging you full price so don't just assume that they won't bulk bill you because some of them may very well do that some of them do have that facility if they're if they can financially afford it they absolutely will so nine of mine do actually cho choose to um, bulk bill me there's only one that can't and that's because she's simply in a clinic that just doesn't functionally um, allow that opportunity um, to bulk bill but I'm completely okay with that because she's bloody exceptional so I have zero problems with with paying that that price the one thing that is fantastic is that although my doctors are private, um, they all work in uh, public hospitals. So they operate in public hospitals, I, sh I should say. They have private clinics, but if a surgery is required, they do operate in public hospitals if something goes wrong. So I can get that surgery as soon as possible through them, bulk build at a public hospital. For example, the one time one of my specialists couldn't operate at, on me at a public hospital, he referred me to the Royal Melbourne Hospital and then strongly advocated for why I needed to be there and to see them. I live three hours away, so I was not in the Royal Melbourne's catchment zone and for that reason alone, they just didn't want to see me. But my uh, specialist advocated strongly that I needed to go there and I needed to be seen by them and as a result of that I was able to get my surgery done there and with them 
and it was completed within three months. Had I used the public healthcare system, I probably would have waited three years just to see the specialist and then another three years just to get the procedure done. If you are having issues navigating the hospital or the outpatient system, you can also contact a health advocate that is available through your local hospital. Most hospitals offer this service where someone can accompany you to your appointment and ask questions on your behalf, etc. So you don't have to feel alone or overwhelmed navigating the public healthcare system. Also, don't be afraid to reach out to your local community health service and your local council for lifestyle supports and referrals. Some councils and community health services offer community service um, supports, so domestic help, transport assistance, physical therapies, etc. at a reduced rate. This is especially important for occupational therapy assessments, which they also offer. Once you've gotten your diagnosis settled and managed, you're most likely going to want an occupational therapy assessment, preferably a functional assessment, and this is why. Because applications to places like the NDIS and Centrelink are 90% more likely to be approved with a functional occupational therapy assessment. Remember all those annoying functional questions we talked about earlier that your doctor's going to need time to respond to? Well, those are the sort of questions that are usually presented to an occupational therapist. It's typical that an occupational therapist will answer those questions as they solve those sorts of problems every day. But here's the catch. Functional occupational therapy assessments can be thousands of dollars. That's why places like Centrelink allow your doctors to answer those questions instead because they are capable and qualified of answering them. But keep in mind a functional occupational therapy assessment is still a specialist medical provision. They specialize in what they are doing. And so their assessment is still going to be more capable and competent, no offense GPs, than what a, a GP assessment will be. So before you go and get an occupational therapy assessment, have a conversation with them about the cost and cost planning with the organization. In my experience, community health centers are cheaper than independent uh, occupational therapy centers. There can be a bit of a wait list to get into them, um, but depending on where you are, it's usually not too long, maybe a couple of months. So perhaps from the moment you're first diagnosed, make that appointment straight away, because by the time everything's sorted, the OT assessment will be just about ready to be due. But as I said, in my experience, they're a little bit cheaper. And most OTs will gladly work with you and recommend a process. For example, they might recommend getting just a standard assessment done, which is around $350 to $400 first. So then you can apply to the NDIS and allow the NDIS to pay the $3,000 for the mental health and vehicle and other assessments. Because make no mistake, functional assessments are independent. They're not... Um, comprehensive you've got a standard assessment you've got a vehicle assessment you've got a mental health assessment and then there's other different types of assessments as well and they each cost money so it's absolutely possible to have a conversation with your OT and they may break it down they may say well okay we're going to do this um, assessment in four parts it's $500 altogether so we'll just charge you 150 here 150 there and you know the remainder here or something like that and in doing so, then 
you can apply, there's a 90% chance that you're more likely to get approved for the NDIS and Centrelink and other things. Um, same applies for income protection and inside superannuation and, and different things. Uh, occupational therapy assessments hold a lot of weight um, and in my experience you, you are much more likely to be approved for things so they are worth their weight in gold they're worth the money you spend have that conversation with them though because they can plan it out for you to help you to afford them and like i said in a lot of cases you can get the initial assessment done a couple of hundred dollars uh, and then another community organization the ndis or something else can pay for the you know it's two thousand dollars for a mental health assessment i think it's like fifteen hundred for a, a vehicle assessment and so on and so forth but have those conversations with them it's absolutely worth it and if you're in doubt ask your gp for a good referral to an occupational therapist they will usually know of one don't be afraid to call and reach out for support to other peak support groups places like mental health victoria vimiac and tandem even if you're not diagnosed with a mental illness the chances are you or somebody close to you will develop anxiety and depression or some mental illness uh, as a result of the very real trauma that you're currently experiencing it's a completely natural and normal response to trauma also in response to the royal commission into mental illness and the federal government's response to COVID, governments are inv investing a lot of money and resources rolling out new care coordinating services along with peer support and psychosocial psycho support networks and resources. So reach out to these organisations, especially places like Mental Health Victoria, because these organisations know better than anyone where these new supports are being rolled out and where they will end up and how those services can best support you in your journey. Another place to go to for support is your local financial counsellor or your accountant if you have one and even Centrelink if you'll be applying for a Centrelink benefit. Now I'm going to do an entire podcast on this topic shortly but one of the biggest concerns that people have is how am I going to pay my bills? Am I eligible for Centrelink? Is my partner or my kids going to become a carer? How can I keep my kids in school and prevent this from affecting my kids? A financial counsellor is a free service here in Australia and it can help you to prepare for these sorts of struggles. They can assist you with working out whether or not uh, you have income protection inside your superannuation or disability cover and how to apply for it. They can help you figure out if you'll be eligible for Centrelink. If you have bills that are already beginning to pile up, they can act on your behalf and negotiate with your creditors for you to stop those abusive calls. Centrelink also has financial counsellors and social workers who specialise in this kind of support work. So don't be afraid to have a conversation with them. They can help you to work out what your best course of action will be and what supports and services you're going to be eligible for. Last but not least, check in with your family. Make sure that everybody's doing okay and they're communicating clearly about their needs. I'm not going to tell you that this is not going to be a traumatic and a steep learning curve in your life. But with open communication and the right support systems, you and your family will survive. Just remember to keep checking in on each other and reaching out for, to the support services that I've mentioned here. In our next episode, we're going to discuss how you can actually have those difficult conversations about life and death with the people you love and estate planning and financial management now that everything has changed. 
For more information on today's episode, please view www.beckhowlett.com.au. And if someone you know or yourself is struggling with depression or anxiety, please contact Beyond Blue on 1300 22 4636.